Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Welcome to the Murder Minute podcast. Today, two stories of teenage killers. But first, some true crime headlines. A fifth grader died last week after a fight with another student at her elementary school. The victim, 10-year-old Renaya Wright, was unconscious but breathing when paramedics arrived at Forest Hills Elementary School in Waterboro, South Carolina, about an hour west of Charleston. But she succumbed to her injuries two days later. The other child involved in the fight has been suspended while officials investigate the incident. An official with South Carolina's 14th Judicial Circuit said at a press conference on Friday that it was premature to speculate on whether there will be any criminal charges stemming from this incident. A 21-year-old University of South Carolina student was murdered after getting into a car that she believed to be her Uber on Friday. Samantha Josephson got separated from her roommates after a night out in Columbia, South Carolina, and she ordered an Uber around 2 a.m. A few minutes later, security footage shows the young woman getting into the back of a black Chevy Impala that she mistook for the Uber she had requested. Josephson's body would be found in a field by turkey hunters about 14 hours later. Police have charged Nathaniel David Rowland, 24, with her kidnapping and murder. He was apprehended Saturday, and his black Chevy Impala had blood on the passenger side window and in the trunk. Josephson's cell phone was also found in his vehicle. The child's safety locks were enabled in Roland's car, so that even if the victim had realized she was in the wrong vehicle, she would not have been able to open the doors. An Arby's manager in Oklahoma was charged with murder this week after shooting a customer, according to police. Manager Deanna Young had earlier reported to police that she had an altercation with a drive through customer who cussed at her and spit on her. She asked him to leave. He returned an hour later, circling the parking lot in his car. Ms. Young got into her own car and followed the man, then shot him once in the chest before returning to work to finish her shift. The victim crashed his car into a nearby Walmart, and responding police found him behind the wheel of his car bleeding from a gunshot wound, from which he later died. Ms. Young has been charged with murder and is being held without bail. And those are your true crime headlines. Coming up after the break, two stories of teenage killers. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app on the App Store and follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute. Today, the story of two young girls, one from a stable, happy family, and the other from a broken, neglectful home. What drove both of these girls to kill before they were even old enough to drive? First, Jasmine Richardson, one of Canada's youngest killers. Jasmine lived with her parents and her little brother in a tidy gray house in a town called Medicine Hat in Canada's Alberta province. She was described as a sweet and social girl. But that began to change after she met Jeremy Steinke when she was just 12 years old. Their paths first crossed at a punk rock show in early 2006. 
Though he was 23 and Jasmine was just a seventh grader, the two began dating. Jeremy didn't have the same sort of stable home that Jasmine had grown up with. The child of an alcoholic mother, Jeremy was abused by his father and also by two subsequent stepfathers. Bullied at school, Jeremy attempted suicide as a teen and developed a dark persona. He told his friends that he was a 300-year-old werewolf and he often wore a vial of blood around his neck. Jasmine was instantly intrigued by Jeremy's goth lifestyle, and the photos on her MySpace show a rapid transformation from clean-cut preteen to brooding goth girl. Jasmine's parents did not approve of her relationship with the unemployed dropout, who was nearly twice her age, and they forbid Jasmine from seeing him. Jasmine rebelled, determined to continue seeing Jeremy in spite of their objections. Both Jeremy and Jasmine maintained profiles on an online community called VampireFreaks.com, where Jeremy was known as Soul Eater, and Jasmine chose the username Runaway Devil. The two would send messages back and forth, professing their love for each other and expressing their frustration with Jasmine's parents for trying to keep them apart. It was in one of these online correspondences that Jasmine first mentioned her plan to kill her family. Jasmine wrote Jeremy, I have this plan. It begins with me killing them and ends with me living with you. Jasmine and Jeremy carried out that plan on April 22nd of 2006. Jeremy first encountered Jasmine's mother, Deborah, in the basement and stabbed her 12 times, including a deep gash that pierced her heart. Hearing his wife's screams, Mark Richardson tried to come to her aid, attempting to fight off Jeremy with a screwdriver. Jeremy stabbed Mark 24 times, including nine times in the back. Jasmine's eight-year-old brother Jacob was upstairs in his bedroom at the time of the killings. Deciding it would be too hard for him to grow up without his parents, Jasmine decided that they should kill him too. Jacob begged for his life, pleading with his sister that he was too young to die. But Jasmine and Jeremy stabbed little Jacob and slit his throat leaving him to die in his bedroom, surrounded by blood-splattered toys. The bodies of the Richardson family were discovered the next day, when a six-year-old neighbor boy came over to invite Jacob out to play. The boy peered through the window and saw the bodies of Mark and Deborah lying on the floor in a pool of blood. He raced to tell his parents, who immediately contacted the police. Initially, police worried that whomever had killed Jasmine's family had also abducted her. But they quickly realized that she was not a victim, but instead, the killer. Jasmine and Jeremy were spotted at a restaurant just two hours after the murders, kissing and laughing. They were apprehended by a police a day later and 80 miles away. Because of her young age, Jasmine's name and image were not allowed to be reported by the media, who instead referred to her as J.R. Both were charged with three counts of murder and pleaded not guilty. While imprisoned and awaiting trial, they wrote love letters to each other from their respective jails. In one of these, Jeremy proposed marriage, and Jasmine accepted. Jasmine was convicted and became the youngest person in Canadian history to be found guilty of multiple counts of murder. She received the maximum sentence allowed by law, which, due to her young age, was just 10 years of intensive rehabilitative custody and supervision. She served her time, and was set free and given a new identity in 2016. Canadian authorities have called her a poster child for rehabilitation. Jeremy Steinke was also convicted, 
and was given three life sentences to be served concurrently, with the possibility of parole after 25 years. A few years later, and 1,500 miles away, another teenage girl was planning a brutal crime that would make her one of the youngest killers in Missouri's history. Alyssa Bustamante's life didn't get off to the best start. Born to a neglectful teen mother and a father who served 10 years in jail for assault, Alyssa was in the care of a guardian by the time she was seven. Her grandparents took in Alyssa and her siblings, bringing them to live in their home on a quiet rural road in Missouri. They tried to give her a stable home, but Alyssa remained troubled. She attempted suicide several times during her childhood and received both inpatient and outpatient treatment for depression and was put on medications, including Prozac. Like many teens, Alyssa was active on social media. She kept profiles on MySpace, Facebook, and YouTube, where she listed her hobbies as killing people and cutting. She posted disturbing videos on YouTube, including one in which she convinces her twin nine-year-old brothers to touch an electrified fence. Just before the clip, she writes, This is the good part. This is where my brothers get hurt. Alyssa fantasized about killing. She confided in her best friend that she had often wondered what it would be like to kill someone. But a friend chugged it off as just talk. Nobody realized that Alyssa wasn't just talking. The 15-year-old was actively planning to commit murder. One Friday morning in October, there was no school. So Alyssa got up, went to the woods behind her house, and spent the day digging two graves. Then she waited. She hung out with friends and kept going about it as if everything was normal. She knew she wanted to kill someone. She was just waiting for the opportunity to pounce. There was some speculation that Alyssa dug two graves because she planned to kill her little brothers. She enjoyed inflicting pain on them, as evidenced by the videos she posted on YouTube. But her brothers would not end up becoming her victims. Instead, Alyssa would choose to murder her neighbor, nine-year-old Elizabeth Olton. Elizabeth was a girly girl, with big brown eyes and brown hair. She loved horses in the color pink. Elizabeth and Alyssa lived just a quarter mile apart, and Elizabeth liked to play with Alyssa's younger sister. On the afternoon of October 21, 2009, Elizabeth had gone to Alyssa's house to play with Alyssa's six-year-old sister. She left around 6.15 in the evening to walk home, but Alyssa called her on her cell phone and asked her to come back. Elizabeth trusted Alyssa. They lived in the same neighborhood and would sometimes play together. So, when Alyssa led Elizabeth into the woods behind their houses, she probably would have gone willingly. Once Alyssa had lured Elizabeth into the woods, she beat her, stabbed her, slashed her wrists and neck, and strangled her with her bare hands. Alyssa then placed Elizabeth's body in the grave she had prepared and covered it with soil and leaves. That night, Alyssa wrote in her diary about murdering Elizabeth. Though she later scribbled over the entry, investigators were able to read what she had written. It read, I just fucking killed someone. I strangled them and slit their throat and stabbed them, and now they're dead. I don't know how to feel at the moment. It was amazing. As soon as you get over the, oh my God, I can't do this feeling, it's pretty enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaking though right now. Kay, I gotta go to church now. LOL. On the night of her murder, 
Elizabeth's parents had been expecting her to return home around 6.15 or 6.30. Knowing that Elizabeth was afraid of the dark, her parents started searching for her almost immediately, and search teams were assembled by 7.30 that night. They scoured the woods behind Elizabeth's home, searching right in the area where Alyssa had buried her. But Alyssa had concealed the body well enough that they were unable to find her. Police originally theorized that Elizabeth was abducted, probably by an adult male. But rumors swirled around the small community, and soon enough, police confirmed that they had found evidence connecting Alyssa to the murder. They arrested the teenager, who confessed to the crime and led police to Elizabeth's body. Alyssa was charged with first-degree murder and made her first court appearance on November 17, 2009. Though she had already confessed, she chose to plead not guilty. And even though she was 15 at the time of the murder, the judge decided that she would be tried as an adult, and her trial was set for May of 2011. While she was in custody awaiting trial, a distraught Alyssa was placed on suicide watch and eventually moved to a psychiatric hospital for evaluation. After several delays, Alyssa's trial was finally set to begin in late January of 2012. She faced a possible life sentence in prison without the possibility of parole. Instead, Alyssa avoided trial by pleading guilty to second-degree murder and armed criminal action. She was sentenced to life in prison, with the possibility of parole after 35 years. While the Canadian justice system prohibits sentences of longer than 10 years for offenders younger than 14, no such restriction exists in the United States. Throughout the 1990s, during a national panic over an increase in violent crimes committed by juveniles, many states enacted laws making it easier to try juvenile criminals as adults, resulting in thousands of young people receiving life sentences without the possibility of parole, and some even being sentenced to death. Between 1990 and 2010, the number of juveniles in adult jails went up nearly 230 percent. A few landmark Supreme Court rulings have attempted to reform the juvenile justice system, including a 2005 ruling forbidding death sentences for crimes committed by juveniles, and another in 2012 forbidding life without parole sentences for juveniles except in the most extreme cases where an offender is found to be irrevocably corrupt. The court also ruled that all prisoners who had been sentenced to life without parole for crimes they committed before their 18th birthday would be eligible for resentencing. While those decisions have offered a glimmer of hope to juvenile offenders, many prosecutors have fought back against early release. In Michigan alone, prosecutors filed motions to uphold life sentences in 229 of their 363 cases eligible for review, arguing that those 63% of cases met the irrevocably corrupt exception. Today in the United States, more than 2,000 prisoners are serving life without parole for crimes they committed as juveniles. On any given day, there are 10,000 juveniles incarcerated in adult prisons, with most of them having no access to education and rehabilitative services while they are there. Juveniles held in adult prisons are five times more likely to be sexually assaulted and are 36 times more likely to commit suicide than those held in juvenile facilities. Compared to adults, juveniles are more likely to be harmed by exposure to stress and trauma. But 
they are also more likely to benefit from rehabilitation. Kids who are placed in the adult system are 34% more likely to be rearrested than their counterparts who remain in juvenile courts. Today, the girl formerly known as Jasmine Richardson is a free woman. If she doesn't commit any more crimes, the now 25-year-old's record will remain sealed, and she will go on living with a new identity in an undisclosed location, and will have the opportunity to build a productive, normal life. Announcing her complete freedom in 2016, a Canadian judge told her, "I think your parents and your brother would be proud of you. Clearly, you cannot undo the past. You can only live each day with the knowledge that you can control how you behave and what you do each day." Alyssa Bustamante is also 25. She is incarcerated at a women's prison in Missouri, where she will remain for another 25 years before she is eligible for parole at the age. A fifty. For true crime anytime, download the Murder Minute app, or follow us on Instagram at Murder Minute.